Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dave Hare, and uh, Stacy and the kids are here too. And we are your missionaries to Cameroon, Africa. And if you don't know where Cameroon is, that's okay. Um, I didn't know before either, but it's in West Central Africa. And uh, we went out there in 2014 um, is when we arrived first in Cameroon. So we've been working there primarily with the Kwakum people. And uh, we went there to help the Kwakum people have uh, the Bible for the very first time uh, in their language. And so that's what we've been working on ever since then. And uh, we couldn't be doing it without you guys. So just, you know, we're really thankful for Renew and for your support and your prayers throughout the years. And when we went out, um, we knew there were going to be a lot of barriers to the Kwakum people understanding, knowing, and having the Word of God. And one of the, the first things that we knew, oh, I have a slide of our house. So when we first moved in in 2014 to uh, this village called Dimaco, uh, we knew that the, all these barriers were ahead of us. And the first one we knew was that they didn't have a written language. So when we first moved in, they had a spoken language that we knew we had to learn. No way of writing it down. And so we moved in, and for three full years, just sat down and pretty much every night uh, and, and worked with the language helper, and then went out into the village and tried to practice what we learned, tried to write down as best we could uh, what we were hearing. We actually filled up, each of us, maybe 17 you know, notebooks full of, of information and data from the language. Uh, we then came back to the U.S. and finished a linguistics degree, a master's degree in linguistics, where we used all of that data and studied the language to understand it better. And one of Stacy's main uh, jobs at that time was to help the Kwakum develop a writing system. And so when we went back to Cameroon uh, in 2018, we were actually able to help them uh, choose a writing system for the very first time in Kwakum. And uh, ever since then, we've been working to do literacy, so teach the Kwakum people how to read in their language, and then also to start translating the Bible. And we've started by translating stories. So we're essentially at this stage producing a storybook Bible, which will give them through about 80 stories, an overview of creation to the ascension of Christ. So they can kind of understand the overall theme of the Bible and how God is saving uh, his people. And then we'll go into a full Bible translation after that. So we're headed back in July. We're going to keep working on this probably about two more years of the Storybook Bible and then begin translating the, the whole Bible. And uh, so this is my team. I work with four guys and they're Kwakum. They're actually the translators. So I say I'm a Bible translator, but my role is actually called Bible Translation Advisor. And my main goal, my main job is to help these guys understand the Bible so that they can then translate it into Kwakum. Uh, there's a principle in translation, you can't translate something you don't understand. And so I spend about a week before we do each of these stories just on making sure I understand it. And then I spend, we do a, a session, usually takes three or four days, where we seek to understand it as a team, and then we produce the very first rough draft ever in the Kwakum language. And an interesting thing has happened as I've been working through all these stories with these men is over and over and over again, they say to me as they're starting to understand the story, why in the world did God do it that way? Uh, I think some of their questions are just the normal questions that we have, everyone has, you know, why in the world did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden in the first place, right? If that hadn't been there, things would have gone a whole lot better. Some of the different things they struggle with are because of their culture and things that I don't struggle with. So they really are confused as to why God never seems to use the oldest son. 
You've got Jacob and Esau. God uses Jacob instead of Esau, even though Esau is older. Uh, even when you get to David, you've got David who's like the youngest son, right? God never seems to use the oldest son. That's never bothered me. I'm the oldest son in my family, and there's no position placed on me. But in the Kwakum culture, and I think in the Jewish culture, the oldest son is the one who has the most responsibility. And so they're, they're just, why doesn't God ever seem to use the, the oldest son? They, that's something that's confused them. Another aspect um, of their culture that has confused them and brought about a lot of questions is their view of, of the world. They actually view uh, the world as if they are constantly surrounded by spirits. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as animism or African traditional religion. They believe that when people die, their spirit remains here on earth. And, and so if you ask any little kid in our neighborhood, where, is, where are the spirits of the dead? They'll say all around us. So they're constantly living before an audience, and they believe these spirits can impact their lives. So they're trying to please the spirits. They do different things. They have rituals, sacrifices that they, they, they perform for these spirits in order for those spirits to give them what they want. Um, and a strange thing that has then happened is that when Christianity came into Cameroon, the Kwakum liked it. They, they liked the idea of Christianity, but they just put Christianity in that system. And so, uh, and the, the version of Christianity that they like, uh, that has been appealing to the Kwakum, is what's known as the prosperity gospel. Um, now, you might be surprised if you were to come to Cameroon, if you knew what the churches looked like. This is one of the churches. Um, they're all over the place. In, in almost every Kwakum village, you'll see one of these. And we went and visited everyone that we could. Um, pretty much, I think, all of the churches in the Kwakum villages, there's around 20 villages, and never heard the gospel. And what we heard was that prosperity gospel, which if you haven't heard of it before, the prosperity gospel starts with some really good premises. It starts out with the premise that God is uh, rich. He, is, he owns everything, which is totally true. Then it, it goes on further and says that God is also generous and loves to provide for his children. Again, totally true, right? But then they go one step further and they say, here is a list of things that you need to do. And if you do these things, God will bless you with health and wealth. You'll have all the kids you want to have. You'll be healthy. You'll have cars, you know, whatever you want. God will bless you with those things. We actually went to one church and there was a literal list on a chalkboard, like a checklist. These are the things you need to do in order to please God. And if you please him, just like the other spirits, if you please the spirits, they'll give you what you want. God will give you what you want. Now that sounds really good. And you can understand maybe why the Kwakum like that. Uh, it's, it's, atta it's attainable. It's something, I can just do this and I'll be rich and, and I'll be healthy and everything will be great. But the only problem with it is it's not true. And because it's not true, it never actually produces godliness. On the one hand, it produces um, pride. So there are healthy and wealthy people. Uh, it's usually pastors because one of the lists that they, one of the things they put on the list is give money to the pastor. And so the pastors are healthy and wealthy and they're obviously therefore godly in their own thinking because they're healthy and wealthy. And so there, there's pride. But on the other end of things, which is what is, happens for most people, is just complete desperation because they're poor and they're sick and their kids are dying and they're doing everything on the list and they don't understand why they're not pleasing God. So into this broken and exploitative culture, we have now been translating the word of God for the very first time. And as we've been translating through these different stories from the Old Testament, I've been watching the Lord reshape the way that our translators and anyone who's been touched by this think about God, if they accept it, of course. 
And one of the most impactful stories everyone has told us that's been a part of the project has been the story of Joseph. I want you to just think real quick with me about the story of Joseph through the eyes of someone who has uh, only heard the prosperity gospel. So Joseph was a young man who, whom his father loved him, and his father gave him special gifts. His father told him, go spy on your brothers, see if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And he did that, and not because of any sin on his part, but just because of their jealousy, they threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. In slavery, he works hard, honors the Lord through his actions. Uh, even uh, Potiphar's wife, his slave master's wife, uh, lusts after him, and he flees temptation. And what happens to him then? He's honoring the Lord. He's thrown in prison. In prison, he uh, honors the Lord, works hard. He's able to interpret dreams. And he interprets the dreams of these two guys. One of them dies. The other one gets out of prison. And he says, don't forget me. And what does that guy do? He just forgets him for years in prison. Just leaves him there. And when you get to the end of the story, you think, well, this is the prosperity gospel because he's elevated out of prison. He ends up being the second in charge of Egypt. But why did God elevate him to that status? It was to save his oppressors, to save his brothers, the ones who threw him into the pit and sold him into slavery in the first place. So instead of the prosperity gospel, which is me being elevated on to above everyone else, uh, the Bible is showing us that God actually takes people and puts them in hard places. At the very end of the story, what does Joseph say to his brothers? You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. That means this was God's plan the whole time, was that he endure suffering for a better purpose at the end, which was to save lives. So when we're translating through this story, my, my translators say things like, this is not the God that we've heard of. And I liked that when I heard that, because that's right. It's not the God that they've been taught. This is not the God of the prosperity gospel. But over and over again, with this story and others, it just leaves them wondering, why in the world does God do, it, do these things this way? And I wonder if you guys have ever felt that way. I wonder if you've ever been reading the Bible, read something that God did, especially in the Old Testament, and thought, why in the world did God do it that way? It's not the way I would have done it. Or maybe you've experienced something in your life or in the life of someone in your family and just thought, why is God letting us this happen? Well, I was thinking about all this, taking this in while we were in Cameroon, and uh, I was also just in my own devotions studying the book of Habakkuk. And I realized that not only do my Kwakum friends wrestle with this uh, question of why is God doing it this way, I wrestle with that sometimes, but even God's prophets wrestled with this sometimes. And so I was encouraged by the book of Habakkuk. I'm hoping today I can just kind of give you an overview of the book of Habakkuk so we can see how Habakkuk, the prophet of God, was dealing with these same questions. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, if you're there, I'm going to have verses up on the screen too. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, it's one of those small, hard-to-find ones. You start at Matthew and go left, five books, and you'll find Habakkuk. And we're going to just look at how the Lord was teaching Habakkuk. Starting with just the very first verse, we read the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This is almost all that we know about Habakkuk. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about him. And the verse is maybe not super clear. It starts out with the oracle. I don't really use that word very often. Um, I think of the matrix when I think of the oracle, and I think that's probably the wrong connotation right here. <laughs> Oracle really means message. This is a divine message that is coming from God to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet. The Kwakun people don't have a word for prophet, so we've had to wrestle with that. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks for God. So a message that's been given to God's prophet who's supposed to speak for him. And it also says it's an oracle that he saw, 
which I thought was interesting when I was first studying it. And I realized this is, it sounds like a conversation. You'll see that as we go through it. But it was more than that, but it was also a vision. So he was also seeing things as he's having this conversation with God. Now, let's look at, um, oh, I do need to give you just a little more. Um, based on the context of the book, we know Habakkuk was living in the kingdom of Judah. There was a time when Israel had been split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. Southern kingdom was called Judah because of the sins of their kings. During this time, uh, the people really in both kingdoms spent most of their time not honoring God. And it got so bad to a point that God actually brought the kingdom of Assyria in and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took them as captives. So all that was left of God's people in the, the nation of Israel at this stage was the, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. And this is happening about a, a hundred years after uh, Assyria has taken away the northern kingdom. So you'd think the southern kingdom would look up at the northern kingdom and say, oh, if we don't honor God, we're going to end up like them. But what happens? Well, let's look at what Habakkuk uh, was, we call this first part, he, Habakkuk's complaint. So it's a prayer. Let's look at what he was seeing when he was looking around him. This is what Habakkuk said. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So again, these are God's people living in the southern kingdom in Judah. The only, only, people, only, of, uh, only people of Israel that are left. And Habakkuk is walking out of, I don't know if he lived in a tent. He's walking out of his tent and he looks all around him. And all, what is he seeing? He's seeing violence He's seeing iniquity, he's seeing strife and contention, he's seeing no justice anywhere around him, and he's calling out to God. And apparently this isn't the first time he's called out to God, because he says, how long, God, shall I cry out to you for help, and you will not help? So this is kind of the first time we get a taste of Habakkuk feeling like my translators. He's not saying, why, why did you do this, God? He's saying, God, why aren't you doing anything? These are your people they're being violent and there's no justice. Why aren't you doing something? And then something happens to Habakkuk that's never happened to me when I've had these kind of questions. God actually responded to him. So let's look at the next verse in verse five. This is the Lord responding to Habakkuk. He says in verse five, look around among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So kind of a surprising answer. Habakkuk saying, God, why aren't you doing something about all this sin around me? God says, I am. I am doing something. And honestly, you wouldn't believe what I'm doing. So I don't know how Habakkuk was feeling right now, but God told him a little bit more, starting in verse six. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour, and they come, they all come for violence. The, all their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So Habakkuk saying, God, I'm looking around seeing violence around me. 
God said, and why aren't you doing something, God? God says, I am doing something. And here he explains what he's doing. He's sending in the Chaldeans. You probably have also heard of them as the Babylonians. Sending them in. And what are they coming for? They're coming to bring violence, to destroy the nation of Judah, and to bring everyone who survives, is, survives into captivity. And then at the very end, this is, I don't know if you know the history of the ancient Near East. The Babylonians just kind of pop up and they just start killing everybody. They just go around and just destroy and they're going to walk away from Judah, God says, saying, we're gods. Now, I don't know what Habakkuk was expecting. I don't know what he was wanting God to do about the violence around him, but I know it wasn't this. And you can imagine he was pretty shocked. And we don't have to imagine a lot because Habakkuk responds to God. And we can see that starting in verse 12. Here's Habakkuk's response. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So Habakkuk is, is shocked by what God has said. Again, you're seeing this, this perplexity, this confusion. How can this be? Why, why, how can you do this, God? I think that we can see two aspects of his complaint here. One is he's, he's appealing to the character of God. He says, I know you're a God who is from everlasting. You're a God who is of purer eyes than to see evil. He, I know your character, God. How can then you use someone who is more wicked to swallow up, to defeat someone who's less wicked? That doesn't make sense to him. The other thing, throughout this verse, he says, we shall not die, and you've established them for a proof. I think what he's saying is, we're the only Jews left. We're the only people of Israel left, and you've made promises to us. How can we die if you've made these promises? Now, I want you to notice that Habakkuk is not acting like a skeptic here. I one time heard a, uh, an atheist I don't remember who it was. I've looked for the quote. I can't find it. But it's one of those book writing atheists. And he said, I expect that God would be at least as compassionate as me. Now, that's not Habakkuk's attitude here. That atheist was standing above God and judging him based on his own character. This here, Habakkuk is looking at God's character and saying, I, I see that you are an everlasting and a pure God. And I don't understand what you're doing. So that's why one commentator said that it was not a weak faith, but a perplexed faith that tormented Habakkuk. He wasn't doubting God. He wasn't accusing God. He was saying, how can this be? How can you do this, God? I know who you are. I know the promises that you've made, and I just don't understand. Well, again, the Lord helps him out. He responds to Habakkuk again. And we see that starting in chapter 2, verse 2. So you can drop down to there. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, but it will surely come. It will not delay. All right, so follow the conversation. Habakkuk's looking out. He's seeing only violence and chaos and injustice. He's crying out to God, God, why aren't you doing something? God responds and says, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Babylonians in to take you into captivity and murder a bunch of you. Habakkuk responds in shock. 
How can this be? How could you do that, God? I don't understand. And then God responds. He says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out. I'm going to give you a vision here. And um, I want you to write it down. Remember, this is a prophet. His job is not just to, he's not just, it's not just some guy talking to God. His job is to communicate what he learns to the people of Israel. And we'll see you later, even to the Babylonians. And so God says, I want you to write it down. I want you to give it to people. They're going to run around and let everyone know what I'm going to show you. And he also says, by the way, this is me talking. This is God. And so it's going to happen. Everything that I say is going to happen because I don't lie. I'm God. Everything I say happens is going to happen. If it seems slow, just wait. It'll happen. So then now he gives him the vision. The vision starts in verse 4 of chapter 2. And it's a little bit jarring. Read, read verse 4 with me here. Um, Behold, this is the Lord talking. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, the reason I think it's a little bit jarring as we jump into the vision is we just jump in with a pronoun. His soul is puffed up. What is God even talking about here? But again, if you follow that conversation, Habakkuk's looking out, seeing violence and injustice. He's crying out to God, God, why aren't you doing something? God says, I am doing something. I'm sending the Babylonians in to murder you. Habakkuk says, what? How can you do this? How can you use a more evil people to judge a less evil people? And then this is the Lord's response. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking about the Babylonians. They're, they're an arrogant people. It's not upright with them. They are more wicked, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, in the second part of that verse, you may have heard that before. That might sound familiar to you, and it should, but probably not from Habakkuk. You've probably thought, you're probably thinking of it in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans, in Galatians, and in Hebrews. Paul loved this verse. The author of Hebrews 2 loved it. And you're probably maybe thinking of Romans 1.17, where Paul said, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, that verse right there has actually dramatically affected the way that we worship God. Because back in the 1500s, a Catholic monk read this verse and was confused by it and stressed out by it. He actually was mainly thinking about the beginning where it's talking about the righteous. He's thinking, in order for me to live by my faith, I have to be righteous. And this is Martin Luther, if you don't know who I'm talking about. He's wrestling with this verse, and then he realized the righteousness here is not righteousness we work into ourselves. It's not a list you write on a chalkboard, but it's a righteousness that's given to us as a gift, just like it was given to Abram when he believed. So Martin Luther wrestled with this verse, and because he wrestled with it, we worship the way we do today, because God really used him to change the trajectory of the church but he focused on the word righteous here. I want to think for just a moment about the word faith. The Quakum don't really have a noun for faith. And so we've really had to wrestle as we're thinking through these stories in the Old Testament, as we, we wrote an a evangelistic book where we focused on faith a lot. How do you describe faith? How do you translate faith when you don't really have a word for it? They have a noun or a verb, which is to believe. And, but at least in English, when I hear believe, I think more of like cognitive ascent. I, I believe in God. It kind of means I, I believe that God exists. And we know it's not that, right? Because James tells us that even the demons believe in God and they shudder. They have a response to that as well. So we've been wrestling through it and just trying to figure out a good way to communicate this idea of faith, 
um, of belief? How are we going to communicate? What does it even really mean? And we're starting to, I, I really, we didn't, I didn't think that this is what was going to happen. I wasn't planning on this. But as we've been translating through the Old Testament, God has been helping the Kwakum to understand who he is and also helping them to understand some of these words that they don't have in their own language. They don't have a word for hope. They don't have a word for faith. They don't, really have, a, they don't have a word for, for grace or for gift. And so the Lord has provided these stories for what purpose? It's for us to know God and for us to understand how God works. So as we're translating through, we, we get to Abram. And Abram is this guy who, the Bible doesn't say directly he was an idolater, but it, that his father was. So it's very likely he was worshiping idols. And yet God chose Abram and just said, I'm going to work through you now. And he said to Abram, go and live in a different country. Leave your father, leave all your stuff. I guess he brought a bunch of stuff with him. But leave all that, all your houses, everything that you're, you're used to, and go to a completely different land that's full of people that hate me. And Abram just did. He just got up and he went. And then uh, during this time, he also said, uh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He actually, at one point, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And Abraham means the father of many nations. And we got a good chuckle out of this when we're translating it because Abram has no children. And God has now changed his name. So he's walking around shaking people's hands saying, hi, I'm the father of many nations. He doesn't have any kids. But he just trusted God. He just, he knew that what God said was, was going to happen was going to happen. And then when he finally has Isaac, he finally has the son that God has promised. God says, go up on a mountain and kill him. Offer him as a sacrifice. And in the passage, when we're translating it, when you're translating, you just see things that you'd never have seen before. I never seen, it says that early the next morning, Abram gets up and he, Abraham gets up and he goes to the mountain to sacrifice his son. Early the next morning. He didn't delay it. He didn't say, oh yeah, I'll get to that at some point. He got up early the next morning, took his only son that God's promised him would lead to him being the father of many nations and went to sacrifice him uh, up on a hill. Now God stopped him, if you don't know the story, and he didn't sacrifice Isaac. And that led to the people of Israel, which is awesome. But what we realized as we've been looking through these stories and learning about uh, the nature of God and how God works is that what God wants is he wants us to trust him. And I think a lot of the times when we see the word faith in the Bible, what it's really talking about, or at least a big component of it, is just trust. For Abram to just get up and leave everything he's known and go to a foreign land, and then just trust that God's going to give him a son, and that also sacrificing his son on top of the mountain, the only son he's ever had, is not going to end the promise. It just took a lot of trust. And if we understand faith as trust... I think that really helps us understand this verse. Again, think about the, the conversation. Habakkuk is looking out, seeing violence, injustice, calling out to God, why aren't you doing something? God says, I am doing something. I'm going to bring the Babylonians in. They're going to kill you and take you as slaves. He responds, how can you do this, God? How can you use a more wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation? God responds, behold, his soul's puffed up. It's not upright within him. You're right, Habakkuk. They're horrible, evil people. But do you trust me? I think that's what this means here. The righteous shall live by his faith. Do you trust me? Now, Abraham had like nothing. God had not really revealed much to him. And he just trusted God. But we have so much. And Habakkuk had a lot more. And God even helps him out a little bit more. So if we jump around just a little bit through the rest of the book, we'll see some more things that God showed to Habakkuk to help him 
to have faith. The next, if you go to chapter 2, verse 8, this is actually a part of the prophecy that he's supposed to speak to the Babylonians. And this is what he says. The Lord is saying to the Babylonians, because you have plundered many nations, all of the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. So this is a message for the Babylonians. They're, they're just running around killing everybody and taking everybody as slaves. And they're walking away from their cities saying, we are gods. And God says to them, this isn't going to last forever. I'm letting it go for right now so you can accomplish some of the goals that I have. But there's coming a day of judgment for you. So that was, that's hopeful. If you jump down to verse 14... This is another part of the vision. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So remember, he's been walking out of his tent or house or whatever, and he looks around him, all around him, and all he sees is violence and injustice and iniquity. God says, there's going to be a come, come a day where you walk out and all you can see everywhere is the knowledge of the glory of God. It's like the, it will be like the waters cover the sea. If you've been to the sea, what part of the sea is not covered in waters? It's all covered in waters, right? That's what the sea is. And there will be a day where that's what the earth will be like. We'll walk out of these doors of this church and all we will see is the knowledge of the glory of God. That's, that's pretty hopeful. If you jump down to verse 20, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He says to Habakkuk here, you're looking out and you're seeing chaos all around you, but I am still on my throne. And I like the, that all the earth keeps silence. It reminds me of Job. Put your hands on your mouths. I'm the king. The Bible tells us the Lord sits in the heavens and he does whatever he wishes. He is God. Now, one thing that's funny is God actually never really answers exactly Habakkuk's question. He never gives him a moral argument for why he's able to use a more wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation. He never even tells him the like most hopeful part that he tells some of the other prophets, that there's coming a, a, a Messiah who will then bring about a new heavens and a new earth. He doesn't tell him all of that. He doesn't tell him that he's going to save the Jews. He never tells him that in the vision. But I think Habakkuk got the point. So if you skip down to chapter 3, verse 17, this is the very end of the book. Habakkuk rejoices in the Lord. This is what Habakkuk says. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Do you hear Habakkuk's faith here? He, I think, again, I think he's been seeing this as a vision. God has shown him what Judah is going to look like after the Babylonians come in and destroy everything. The Jews were an agricultural people, just like the, the Kwakumar. So they depended on their fields, on their flocks in order to survive. And he's looking out at an Israel full of ruin where there's no food in the fields and the trees are broken and all the animals are dead. He knows what's coming. He knows this is a message from God, so he knows it's going to happen. And what does he say? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my, what does he say? My salvation. 
He didn't know how. He didn't really understand exactly why God was doing the things he was doing, but he just trusted that God would bring salvation to his people because he already knew who God was. And I think what was happening throughout the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk who knew what, who God was, he knew that he was righteous. He was learning a really, really important lesson about God that I've seen the Kwakum start learning throughout time now too, is that God's not like us. He doesn't, in, in Isaiah 55, it says, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. In fact, they're as far as the, the heavens are from the earth. That's how, how distant God's ways and thoughts are from ours. He was learning that God doesn't do what we expect him to do. But he was also learning that that's, that's a good thing. One reason that's really clear in this book that that's a good thing is that God doesn't lie. We lie and we're limited and we can say something's going to happen and it won't happen. But we know that when God says he will do something, we know that he will always do that thing. But most of the time he's going to do it in a way that we wouldn't do it. I have had multiple times in our ministry where I've thought, here's how things are going to go. And they just never go that way, ever. And this idea that God does things different from us really culminated in the greatest act of all, all time, which is that God sent his son to die on the cross so that we would be saved. Think about yourself in the position of God for just a moment. You've filled, populated an entire planet with people, and the only, one of their only reasons for existing is worshiping you. They rebel against you like from day five, and ever since then, all of them have rebelled against you. And then you think, you know what? I'm going to send my son to them. They're going to murder him. And then through that murder, I'm going to save a whole bunch of them. Is that how you would have done it? I wouldn't have even thought of that. But God has done something so great that there are people that are going to come from every tribe, tongue, and nation from all over the world one day and worship him for it. God does not do things the way that we expect him to do things. He doesn't do the things we would do if we were in his place. But it's really good. It's really good because God works all things together for the good of those who love him. We can't do that, and God can and he always will because of who he is. As much as we've, uh, I've seen this through Habakkuk, I've seen the Lord teaching in the book of Habakkuk, teaching Habakkuk about that aspect of his nature. I've also watched the Kwakum people learning these things too. And it's been really exciting. We shared about Ko and Mommy last time we were here, which is a, a young couple that God has saved. And they're, they've gone through great suffering. We talked about them losing their child and, and uh, Mommy's uh, uh, father being murdered. And they've gone through this suffering knowing because of the, the story of Joseph, really, that God doesn't just always bless people, his people with health and wealth, but he uses evil in their lives to do good. I think Habakkuk was seeing that too, that God was using evil, uh, this evil people for good things. I want to share with you another story to, to close out today of a young woman named Maggie. Um, this is Maggie. Maggie is a young, a young lady we met in our village. Uh, when she was still a little girl originally, and she's been growing up about two houses down from us. And Maggie is, she was, she had polio when she was very young. And because of that, her, her whole body is bent in half. So she's able to walk, but when she walks, her head is, is down by her knees. Uh, it's very hard for her. And because she got polio and was crippled, her mom and dad abandoned her, just left her in our village and took off. Uh, and this family that's uh, essentially her, her uncle and aunt are raising her, have, have been raising her. 
caring for her throughout all these years. And uh, Maggi has experienced um, what I told you about African traditional religion. She's been growing up in that, believing that if you please the spirit, you'll get what you want. She's heard probably the prosperity gospel pretty clearly. They even had a faith healer come to her one day and say that if she had enough faith and they did enough of this ritual, God would heal her. They ended up jumping on her legs um, and ended up breaking her legs in the midst of that. So she has experienced that depression I was talking about that the prosperity gospel brings of, I'm doing everything I know what to do, and yet I'm still suffering. And so because she was right next door to us, we've been talking to her throughout the year. She would come to church because the church is kind of in between our house and hers. Um, But it was very clear throughout the time that she was, was not a believer and so as we've started up the literacy project and started up Bible translation, Stacy uh, said, why don't you come over? I mean, you're sitting out in front of your house all day. Why don't you come sit in the back of our translation center and just listen, just hear what we're doing and, and get, it, get the experience. She was a bit hesitant at first, but we, uh, we feed everybody who comes. So I think that was probably a good reason, a big reason of why she started to come. And so she started to sit in the back of the translation center on this couch And we do all of our storing orally, so uh, all of our our drafting. So we're wrestling, not on a written piece of paper, but we're wrestling through these concepts orally, and we're producing the very first rough draft of the translation uh, orally. It's essentially, they're just telling stories. So all throughout this time, she's back in the back hearing us tell all these stories about God and wrestle with how to to say things that they don't have words for. And she's become kind of a a check on how bad some of our translation is because she she just will mock us, you know? And um, one time, for instance, she came up to Stacy after we had had a session and just said, in the story where um, God calls Moses and Moses says, I can't do it, and, and God sends Aaron to Moses, uh, it says that Moses ran and greeted him and greeted him with a kiss. So he kissed him. The Kwakum don't have a word for kiss. And so we were really wrestling through that. And she came up to Stacy and told her one of our ideas, uh, which was Moses sucked on Aaron's cheek. Um, <laughs> and she told Stacy, please don't let them translate it that way. Um, so she's getting to hear all these stories. She's, we, we stopped all of our translation for a while and produced something we call the Book of Good News, which is a, essentially an evangelism uh, a curriculum. And so she's hearing all of these things about the gospel. And an, an amazing thing started happening somewhere in the middle. She just started feeling a really strong conviction of sin. So she started, she said to Stacy, you know, people think because I'm handicapped, I don't sin. But inside my mind, I've realized like I, I lust, I covet, I, I'm angry. Um, and you can imagine why she would have angry feelings and thoughts um, just with the hard life that she's had. And, but the, at that point, she's feeling this conviction of sin and she just kept saying, I need to do better. I need to do better. I need to do better, which is that list kind of mentality, which is not the gospel. And so when we got done with the, the good news, the book of good news, she asked Stacy to go through that with her. And so Stacy sat down with her and it's a, a like week or a couple weeks kind of thing. You sit down a little bit a day and go through it. And as they're going through the book of good news, Stacy's just seeing that she's not understanding what grace is. She's not understanding mercy. She's not understanding what real faith is. And um, Stacy ended up sharing a story with her that we had read in a different book. Um, and it was about a, a young boy who lived in an African village type setting. And you have to cross a river to get back to the village. So he's crossing the river and he slipped 
but he didn't know how to swim. He grabbed onto some branches or something and is struggling in the middle of the river. And the Kwakun people don't know how to swim. So they, they really related to this story. The whole village comes out and they see him there and they want to help him, but they can't swim either. And they, they can't help the boy. And finally, a, a young man walks up and the whole village knows this young man does know how to swim. So they, they call out to him, go, go save him. And he just sits down. And he just watches this boy struggle in the middle of the river and doesn't dive in and save him. Finally, when it almost seemed that this young boy was going to be swept away, this man jumps into the river and swims over and saves the boy's life. Now, of course, the village is elated that they've sa he saved the boy, but they ask him, why did you wait so long? You know, he could have died. And the man said, well, I've learned that when people are drowning, when you go to try to save them, they will often try to save themselves and in doing so will push you under the water and both people will drown. So I've learned I have to wait until he's so tired of trying to save himself that when I come, he'll just cling to me and let me save him. So when Maggie heard this, she just cried out, I'm the boy, that's me, I've been trying to save myself, but I need to stop trying to save myself and I just need to let Jesus save me. And it was like this amazing light bulb moment in, for her and for us as we're seeing that God has shown her now what true faith is. It's not trying to save yourself. It's, try, it's just trusting in Jesus to save you. So Ma, uh, Maggie decided that she would wanted to be baptized, which was a big step for her because she hates walking in front of people because when she's bent over like that, she's just ashamed and people have mocked her her whole life. And so... We're really encouraged by that. And the Sunday's coming. It's Saturday now. She's about to be baptized on Sunday. And one of Maggie's cousins calls Stacy over to her house and says, uh, you need to come. Uh, Maggie's in trouble, essentially. And so Stacy thought maybe she was having cold feet, wasn't wanting to be baptized. And she gets over there and finds that Maggie's mom has returned to the village and is screaming at her and hitting her and basically just saying, why did you have to be born? You've ruined my life by being handicapped. I wish you had died when you were born uh, and other horrible, horrible things. And so Stacy called me over and uh, I was able to get her mom out of the house. It was really dramatic. I ended up almost taking her to the police station because she was drunk and just so angry and violent and wouldn't stop saying these horrible things. It was, man, it was a rough night. And it was like 2 a.m. when it was all over. And Stacy is now sitting. I, we've gotten the mom off somewhere else, and Stacy's sitting with Maggie. I want you to just take a second and put yourself in Maggie's shoes. You've heard your whole life, you either please the spirits or please God, and if you do that, they'll give you what you want. She is now wanting to honor the Lord, even willing to get up in front of all of the people of our village and be baptized in the middle of a river. She's willing to do that because she wants to honor the Lord because she's come to know who Jesus is. And now she's getting beat and verbally berated the night before her baptism. She uh, has had faith healers that have told her, if you have enough faith, you can be healed. She now actually has faith and, and the Lord hasn't healed her. How would you respond to that? So Stacy's sitting with Maggie, comforting her after all this went down and said, are you still, do you still want to be baptized? And Maggie replied, I'm a Christian. I have to be baptized. I'm following Jesus. Jesus was persecuted. He said I would be persecuted too. This is my new normal. She chose 
to follow Jesus, knowing that it would lead to her persecution and suffering. How does that happen? How does this little girl who's suffered her whole life, who's now been taught a really good message, but doesn't include her having an easier life from now on? In fact, it'll probably be harder. How does she, how does she do that? The only way that she can do that is if she trusts God. That's the only way that she can follow a God who's telling her she will be persecuted is that she believes in God and believes in his promises and believes there's going to come a day where she's going to have a new body, but it's not going to be now. The only way that she could have the peace to get out in front of all of these people and be baptized is if she trusted God. And that didn't come from Maggie. That came from Jesus. So it was really awesome. The next day we had our church service. I love how our church does baptisms. We have our church service. Uh, usually people will stand up and share their testimony, those who want to be baptized. She obviously stayed seated and, and shared her, her testimony. I put her in my car so she didn't have to walk all the way down to the river. But the, the, we love as a church, we walk all the way down to the river singing worship songs. And it's like a Sunday afternoon, like nobody's doing anything. So a lot of the people even come with them. So I get down to the, the river and everybody marches up, including her mom. <laughs> who came and we, we go down and our pastor gets into the water and I carry her down there and uh, they've set up a little bench. And so we sit her down on the bench in the middle of the river. And then, uh, with our, our congregation, we, we, uh, our, our pastor does triple immersion. So when they baptize, they do three dips, right? So this young girl, you know, on this bench, she's bent over, we're dipping her in the water on the third time. The bench just takes off and goes down the river. You can see it behind us there. And I just scoop her up. And this picture is just so awesome because I scoop her up and she just throws her arms up in the air. And so does pastor Boris. And there's just such great rejoicing, great rejoicing because she has trusted God. Now, I'm going to take a moment to pray in just a second, but I want to take a moment and ask you, do you trust God? When you read the Bible and you see that God doesn't act like you, he doesn't do the, the things the way you would, do you trust him? When you have suffering, you lose a child like mommy did, or um, you, you have people berate you and treat you poorly, do you trust God in those moments? I think there's a lot of pressure right now in America to be ashamed of God. I may have mentioned this last time we were here, but right when we arrived, there was a pastor who said that Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament because the Old Testament God is not the God of Christians. I think it's the exact opposite. Magi sat in the back of our translation house and learned who God was. And because of these stories of Abraham and, and, and Moses and, and David, because of these stories, she came to know that she could trust God. We need God's word so that we can know who God is so that we can trust him. I want to encourage you. I'm sure Maggie still feels this way at times. I still feel this way. If you've had that question in your heart of why would God do it this way? Why does God allow this to happen? That's, that's normal. If you understand everything that God does, you're worshiping the wrong God. Because our God is so far above us, we have no idea except for what he tells us he's going to do. And when he tells us he's going to do something... We can know he will always do it. I've told you, you know, we don't have a, a word for, for faith in Kwakum. Um, but right before we left, I ended up having a conversation with a, a man. And he was giving a field to one of his sons. And I said, do you think your son is actually going to, you know, do a good job on your field? And he said, oh, yeah, I gave my heart to him. I was like, wait a minute. That's what I'm looking for. 
That means trust. I trust him with my field. I trust that he will do what I expect him to do. And I love that idiom because it's like I give my heart to somebody. It's your heart is just this like soft, fleshy organ that can't protect itself. If you're actually giving your heart to someone, you have to trust that person to do what is right with it. And as I look at at Maggie, I know that she's given her heart to God. I know that she just trusts him. She doesn't know what it's going to look like. And she might still get frustrated at times, but she knows that she can trust God. I just want to give you a a promise. If you do trust God, you won't be disappointed. There will be harder times, but you won't be disappointed. Maggie has great joy. Mommy and co have experienced great joy. And that is a joy that only comes through trusting God. And so I'm going to pray that God would give us that kind of a a faith, a trust in God right now. And then I think we're going to sing some songs and, and take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for um, your word that just tells us that you are not like us and that you don't do things the way that we expect you to do. You don't do the things we would do if we were in your place, but your word also helps us to see that that's a really good thing, that you know everything, you know what's going to happen, you know what we're going to experience and you know what is best for us and you will always do what is best for us. And Father, we can know such deep, great joy like Maggie does, like Ko and Mommy do, if we trust you. I pray that you would give us trust, that we would have faith, that we would trust in who you are based on who we know you to be revealed in Scripture. And I pray, Father, that we would know that joy. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.